to the Bean Ninjas podcast, where you get an all-access pass to see what happens behind the closed doors of a fast-growing global bookkeeping and financial reporting business. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Bean Ninjas podcast. Today, we're joined by Carrie McKeegan from Greenback Tax. I met Carrie a couple of years ago at a conference and she was speaking with her husband, David, around distributed teams. And we've since met in Bali and have also been part of an active online community. There's lots of things I'm looking forward to chatting about with Carrie today. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let's start with just a snapshot of what Greenback looks like today. Could you tell us a little bit about your business, maybe team size? Sure. So we're a completely remote team, 100%, basically all over the world, really. About 50 people. We're 10 years old, so we actually just had our formal 10-year anniversary in February of this year. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah, it was kind of exciting. It was actually really fun to kind of look back on Greenback 10 years in. We've got about 35 accountants and about 15 members, actually a little bit more accountants, but about 15 members of the management team who do things like marketing and sales and finance and things like that and the rest of the accounting team. And like I said, it's 100% global business. Most people, though, are in the U.S. working from home offices. Is it U.S. expert tax solution? So it's for people that are living outside of the U.S. that need to file their taxes in the U.S.? Yep, exactly. So there's, you know, depending on the counts, there's anywhere between kind of four and nine million Americans who live abroad. And the U.S. is, you know, one of only two countries that require their citizens to file when they move abroad, and we help them to do just that. So it's a lot more complicated if you're outside of the U.S. And so our business is 100% focused on those folks. So the business is 10 years old now, but let's take it back to the early days. What was the reason for starting the business? Two reasons. So in terms of starting a business overall, so my husband and I were living in London. So we had gone, both worked in corporate jobs in New York, both gone to business school and did a global MBA. And really kind of both are very entrepreneurial minded, living in London and basically kind of got to a point where we both liked the jobs that we were in. We both were really kind of enjoying what we were doing, but we were feeling a little like we wanted to be able to be a little less tied to any particular city. And we were also starting to think about starting a family. And so we recognized, you know, both of us really wanted to set something up on our own that just gave us a little more of that wiggle room and flexibility to kind of set life on our own terms, but still in the context of something that we were really excited and really proud of. So we wanted to start a business. In terms of why we started that business specifically, it was literally just because we couldn't find anybody to do our taxes <laughs> well. Yeah. So we were Americans living in London. We knew all our friends were having that problem. And so when we were you know, sitting down and kind of trying to brainstorm ideas, it just kind of kept popping up there. So it was one of those you know, scratch your own itch type concepts. So you had the idea, you, you knew that you wanted to start a business. You saw a problem that you could solve. And then what did those first couple of years look like? I'm very structured in terms of kind of going about things. So it was literally like, you know, what Dave and I did at the time is we literally kind of set up a project plan and like kind of a firm plan in terms of what we wanted to get in place and set ourselves some timelines around it. So, you know, we literally launched the business, I think it was probably about 12 months after we had the first, you know, idea. But a lot of happened. It really was kind of most of the activity was in the last six months of that time frame. And then we set ourselves a pretty aggressive goal that said, you know, if this isn't basically paying our bills within 12 months, then we, you know, kind of go back to a more traditional 
set up until it does. And so we went at it pretty aggressively from the beginning. And, you know, the first thing we did, obviously the hardest thing was finding really terrific couple of accountants that had expertise in this area. And I have to say, I think we got really lucky in that regard. I mean, we just found a couple of people, but one person in particular who was just really fabulous and was with us for several years and is someone we still keep in touch with and, you know, kind of set it up from there. Thing is, we actually have quite a lot of accountants that listen to the show. And so I think it's interesting from their perspective to know that you and Dave aren't actually accountants. Is that right? You worked in finance, but you hire accountants rather than doing the accounting yourselves, even in the early days. Yeah, even in the early days. So, you know, Dave actually took the enrolled agent exam. So he studied and took the enrolled agent exam purely to make sure that we understood all of the ins and outs of the business. But we never intended to be the accountants actually doing the work. What our goal was is to hire very, very specialized folks that really knew what they were doing. So it's all enrolled agents and CPAs with three to five years of expat tax experience specifically. And it's funny because we were really nervous about that at the beginning, as in, is this crazy for non-accountants to start a business? But when you think about most other kinds of businesses, those who run the business aren't necessarily the ones who have that particular expertise, right? So the CEO of Pepsi, you know, for example, isn't the person who's making the formula for Pepsi, right? Like it's somebody who knows how to run a business. And I actually think that that's ended up being one of the strengths of the business in that we understand expats. So we really understand Americans who live abroad. We understand the consumer and we then hire accountants that can satisfy the needs of those consumers. I actually think it might have been a blessing in disguise. I was in the other position where I also run a business in a similar industry. We're not doing taxes, but we're doing bookkeeping and financial reporting, but I'm an accountant. And so it's taken, we were chatting before we started recording and it's taken me almost four years to remove myself from the service delivery side of the business. Whereas with your model, you were able to do that from the beginning and then really focus on other areas of the business. So I I think that that's a really interesting journey. And especially for our accountants listening, showing that you can run a business without necessarily being in there doing the technical side of things. Yep. So a couple of years in, and where were you living at this point? I know that you lived in Bali at some point, but Were you still in London or had you moved? Yeah. So when we started the business, we were in London. And then we kind of went through this process first. And I think everyone had this, a lot of people have this sort of dream before they realize what it's going to be like in practice. We were like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to, you know, be in different locations. So we're going to move every six months or so. And within the first six months of doing that, we had a newborn we were like, you know, absolutely sick of the idea of kind of, you know, moving, <laughs> moving all of the time. It sounded so wonderful in practice. And in theory, it was like, you know, absolutely ridiculous when I look back on it. So we went, we were living in London and we did kind of a brief stint where we went and we spent some time in Brazil. We spent some time in Uruguay and then went back to London. And then we um, moved to Bali from there. So I'm usually a very structured person, right? So I had like spreadsheets of different places we could move to. And I had all of this, you know, logic to what we were going to do and couldn't quite decide. It's almost harder to figure out where you're going to live if you can live anywhere, ironically. And we went to breakfast with a friend of ours who had just come back from a year in Bali. And he was like, you know, everything you're saying you want is exactly what you can do there. And we just went back home that day and booked a ticket and thought, you know what, we'll do this for three to six months and then we'll find somewhere more practical to be and sort of wound up living on and off there for about eight years afterwards. I love this spreadsheet story. I actually did the same thing to end up on the Gold Coast and I wait, part of my criteria was 
surf breaks as well as climate proximity <laughs> to the National Airport. Yeah, that's funny. I could definitely relate to that. <laughs> and so you were running a business from Bali, but a lot of your accountants, I imagine, would have been based in the US as US CPAs. So what was that like for you, running the business from Bali with a lot of the team? Well, and I'm making an assumption. I should probably check, first of all, were a lot of your team based in the US and in that time zone? Yeah. So the vast majority of the team are in the US. We've got a couple of people in Greece, for example. We've got somebody who's in Panama. You know, we've got people that are in Hong Kong. Like we've got people all over, but 80% of the people are in the US and the management team is predominantly in the US. So it works strangely. It works better than you'd think, <laughs> which kind of doesn't make sense. But I'm an early riser. So basically what I did is I started really trying to condense the team, particularly the management team who I needed to interact with on a day-to-day basis. As we were hiring people, we tended to hire people that were in the Pacific time zone. And what that meant is that my mornings overlapped with their end of day. So I'm naturally somebody who's up, you know, at like 4.30 or 5 a.m. And so I was just doing calls and interacting with people sort of super early in the morning, my time, end of day, their time. So three o'clock, their time, you know, 5 a.m., my time kind of thing which actually had its pros and cons, right? So from a con perspective, it was difficult to do team meetings in person, right? So now that I'm actually in Costa Rica, it's much easier for me to kind of pop over to the US for a meeting here and there. It obviously means you only have a couple hours of your day that you're overlapping in terms of, you know, scheduled times. But from the positive side of things, it actually, I think, made it so that the team that I was hiring was very self-sufficient. So I've got just a really, really terrific team of people that are just self-starters. They're really independent. They kind of know when to, you know, ask for guidance versus when to run things on their own. And I think that was born out of necessity, right? They didn't have access to me all day. And so that's just sort of the people that stuck that we hired. So in a lot of ways, it actually ended up being as much as it was difficult, right? It's hard to get on the phone at 6 a.m. every day. Yes, It was great in terms of the team structure and the company culture that it brought. Yeah, that's really interesting. And do you have any hiring tips around finding people like that where you've Talk about their, their self-starters. They, they were able to work without a lot of management. Is that something that you had built into your recruitment process? Yeah. I mean, we definitely interview for people who can sort of operate on their own. I mean, and we look for people that have a track record of that. You know, when I first started hiring people remotely, a lot of people, especially 10 years ago, no one had ever worked remote. So everyone thought it sounded great. But actually, for some people working remotely is exactly right for them. And for some people it just isn't, right? So one of the things that we look for now is really identifying people who've already done it and can really kind of show that they're able to work on their own. And we also look for people who, you know, it's funny, little things, right? Like if you're in an interview and all of what someone is saying is we, you know that they worked on those things, all collaborate as a team all the time. Whereas when someone says I, <laughs> you know that they did it on their own. It's just one of those silly little things that you can look for. But the real key, to be honest, is that we have just an absolutely excellent HR person. So she just knows how to suss out exactly who's the right fit from a company culture perspective and, you know, ask the right questions at the right time and just as a really good judge of fit. And so did she need to build up that knowledge? Did she build that up working at Greenback? Because I think hiring for remote teams I think it's different from when you're hiring local staff for some of those reasons, like people needing to be self-motivated and to be disciplined enough to work when there's not other people around them and even enjoying working if they are working from home. So how did your HR person build up those skills or did they come to you with already knowing what they were looking for? Or maybe that's even just a 
something that all HR people know. You know, I don't know, actually. I should probably ask her that. But the sense I get in terms of the way, so she joined us many years ago and then left for about two years and came back afterwards. So she's been with us for quite some time. She was one of our first kind of full hires. And when she joined us, she didn't have tons of experience hiring remotely, but she's really good at asking, looking for that kind of company culture and trying to assess what skills people have had in the past that have made them successful. So for example, I just had a call with her about an hour ago and we were hiring for another role and she was saying, just tell me a little bit about, you know, what success looks like for that person. What words would you use to describe them? Like she just sort of asks all those questions and a lot of that kind of comes out. So it's not specifically, I guess, about hiring remotely, but I do think that, you know, if you have somebody who is excellent at really understanding what the company culture looks like, and in our case, company culture is very much around, you know, being able to work really autonomously, being really having ownership for your work, being really proactive and communicative she sort of naturally knows to look for those things because it's what she sees that's succeeded internally already. Yeah, interesting. So if we go back to the story again, so we, we've looked at what the first couple of years was like and then as the business has grown and your team size has grown as well. So say if we look at around two or three years, maybe if we go back to five years, what did your role look like and what did Dave's role look like? And then what has that evolution looked like between the two of you? Sure, yeah. When we started the business, it was the two of us doing everything, right? So I was doing, you know, marketing and he was doing sales and I was doing operations and he was doing finance. And we were like, you know, there was literally like, we'd be sitting next to each other, you know, working and we had gotten a business school together. And so we'd been on a couple of business school teams together. So we were really in touch with what each of our strengths and weaknesses were. And so it was really, really natural just to divide things up. You know, it was really kind of uncanny what a good fit it was for us to work together on a two-person team because everything that Dave is excellent at is not my strength and everything that I am excellent at is not his strength. And so it just jived really, really naturally. So in the early days, it was a whole lot of collaboration, but in this almost kind of unspoken way, right? Like you just knew who was going to pick up what because it just made sense yeah. <laughs> in terms of what you were doing. After a couple of years, as we started hiring people, it got more complicated. So then we split things up and we sort of said, okay, so Dave is overseeing finance and HR and I am overseeing marketing and ops. But actually, like in terms of decision-making, we were very used to making a lot of decisions together, but that was hard for the team to know how to handle that per se. So do you go to both of us on everything? You know, there's a lot of things that are cross-functional. Do you go to both of us on everything? Do you go to one person? You know, how do you handle that? Does everyone, you know, in all the same meetings all the time? So we did start to see probably like kind of five years in, I would say, is about when we started to see some of that, that we had to delineate things a lot more and really be very clear and have different kind of management of different parts of the business and do a lot of kind of collaboration in the back end. But at the same time, personally, we had three kids, <laughs> right? So we were in this situation probably about seven years ago is really when we started looking at realizing like this isn't working as well as it did before. You know, we've got three little boys who are nine, six, and four now. So I guess it was six years ago, actually. When we had our four-year-old, you know, we got to a point where it was, we realized we're duplicating, you know, it's a full life, right? We've got three very small kids and we're, you know, running this startup or kind of past startup stage, but still small business. And we needed to delineate a little bit more between kind of you know, what happens if, you know, our one-year-old is homesick? Like what happens that day? Who does what? And if you're duplicating a lot on a work perspective, it actually makes it a little difficult from a home perspective to find that time. And we also started finding that 
people were going to both of us for everything. So it was like, oh gosh, we really need to find a way to structure this a little better. So about two and a half, three years ago, we made the decision that Dave would sort of not exit the business altogether because you know, he still sits next to me <laughs> most days when we're sitting, you know, working, but that he would be sort of the primary caretaker for the kids, would act in an advisory role. So we still, there's any big decisions. I still kind of chat to him a little bit as my husband, a little bit as a business partner, a little bit as somebody who kind of knows the business through and through, but really split that out. So now I'm the CEO of the business and Dave has since started another small tax business as well. And what was that transition period like? where you were moving into that CEO role and then I imagine the team would have needed to change their approach and send all of those decisions or send those requests across to you. Did that transition take some time and were there any road bumps along the way? You know, it wasn't too, because like I said, we'd been duplicating a lot. So it wasn't something where like he had people that were reporting to him that I didn't know or didn't kind of have a relationship with already. So I actually think it was simpler for everybody. It was just very, very clear how decisions were made. And it was very, very clear, you know, you're having a meeting, you're, you know, putting someone on an email, (laughs) you're doing any of that. So it actually really wasn't a huge transition that way. It was definitely a transition personally, right? Because we were used to working together all day. And so it was a little, like I remember kind of for a year or two being like, oh, this is kind of lonely. <laughs> you know, like it was just a little strange, but that was just more personal than business. From a business perspective, it actually flowed fairly smoothly. And so what does your CEO role look like today? What sort of things do you work on? So about a year and a half ago, um, we promoted a lady internally who'd been with us for, you know, she's been with us now for about six years to the director of business operations role, which is sort of a general manager role. That's her title, but it's basically, she looks after running the business for me day to day. And so my role is very much around strategy, around leadership, around kind of making sure that we have the right team in place, that the team has the right resources and less so about execution. And that sounds like what a CEO role should be. And I know that the transition to that can be difficult and can take time. That's something that I've been working on in my own business, trying to remove myself from the day-to-day. And I know that a lot of our listeners as well are trying to remove themselves from operations so that they can focus more on things like strategy and leadership. So it's great hearing a success story like that to hear that it can be done. So it took about nine years to have that particular, was that a new role? that was created, the general manager type role? Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, the way that it evolved, so Lisa, who's the lady who's running the business day to day, she was starting to take on a lot of those roles well before we really formalized it. So, you know, for the last four years or so, she was looking after all of marketing and operations, right? So she was looking after that whole side of the business. And so it really was kind of a very natural progression, I would say. You know, it doesn't feel like just two years ago, I kind of exited the day-to-day in terms of execution. It just feels like we kind of formalized and created more of that structure since then. Yes. And one of the things, you know, and people often say like, well, how do you do that? You know, how do you kind of take a step back a little bit? And one of the things we've always done as a business, and we've been better in some years than others. And I find that anytime we let go of the structure a little bit, we're like, oh man, why would we, <laughs> why would we let that slip a little But one of the things that we've always been really, really good at is making sure that we're managing through a tremendous amount of structure. So metrics, reporting, like just lots of structure in place so that I'm able to look at the business using some of the metrics that are coming out on a weekly basis. So we do, you know, we have weekly reporting packs from each side of the business. And then we also have monthly state of the business 
meetings with each function. So the reason I think that the structure that Lisa and I have worked so well right now is because she's seeing everything on a database. She's making sure that everything's running. But it's not that I am so completely uninvolved that I don't know and I can't kind of share advice or feedback or help course correct because I am seeing how things are going on a monthly basis in terms of just overall the progress and on a weekly basis in terms of looking at all of the metrics. So I often don't step in at any of those moments. I just kind of, you know, it's usually a oh, things are going well, but it isn't something where I think sometimes people imagine that once you move into a CEO role, like you're really sort of divorced from seeing anything that's happening day to day. Like you just don't have that visibility. And I don't feel like I'm lacking the visibility. I'm just lacking any of the ownership or day-to-day executional side of things. And it sounds like you kept that visibility through a lot of the structures and reporting metrics. And so is that different managers within the business completing that weekly or monthly report? I was just going to ask more about the specifics of the type of reports that you, or what kind of information from the different managers that you look at. I mean, there's probably lots of metrics. Lots of metrics. And I'm a little crazy with (laughs) metrics. So I have to say, like, I'm definitely a managing through metrics kind of person, but I just feel like it really gives you a pulse check and it sort of really gives you a sense of knowing where to focus your time, not just for me, but more so for the people who are actually doing the day to day. And kind of the backstory to that, and I'll explain a little bit about the metrics that we get each week. But before Dave and I started Greenback, I managed a partnerships for Barclays. So I was the general manager of a couple of partnerships. And that's one of the things that Barclays did really, really well. So you really kind of saw how you were managing through metrics. And so when I first started the role at Barclays, I was like involved in everything, right? I was working... I was one of those people that like slept with my Blackberry <laughs> under my pillow. <laughs> and literally that kind of profile. I was looking at everything and I just was drowning in it. I mean, I just couldn't figure out how you could watch everything at the same time and know where to spend your time. And really got lots of good examples from another you know, person who was running a, a partnership as well in terms of how they were managing using these kind of scorecards and reporting packs. And you know, the main thing I learned is that People hate doing them, right? Like you will never find a team the same way with SOPs, right? You'll never find a team member that is like, I like my reporting and I like my SOPs. People don't want to do it, but they love the control that it gives them and the visibility and the clarity and the focus. So if you can just take your team from that point of like total resistance to like a few wins of like, look at how this helped us to really be focused and succeed, you know, those little wins then kind of keeps people going from then on out. You're never going to have any resistance on any of the metrics and reporting. So I've kind of taken that lesson and applied that within the context of Greenback. You know, we've got tons of different reporting that we look at, but a lot of what we look at actually on Mondays. So every Friday, each team member does their individual reports. So we've got a marketing business scorecard. We've got a sales scorecard, customer service, customer satisfaction and a general state of the business. And then there's an HR one that comes out every other week, depending on if we're in kind of accountant hiring season or not. And a lot of what we look at is customer service metrics. So that's the thing that no matter how uninvolved I've been in a business, I always make sure that I am reading what people are saying, what customers are actually saying, and just literally kind of seeing how people are doing you know, those kind of nuances in terms of behavior and language and, you know, not just the overall detractors or scores where people say, you know, I love this or I don't love this, but actually reading what they say each week. So we have a lot of metrics, but we also make sure that we have a pulse check in terms of the actual feeling amongst customers each week. That's great advice. And if you were to talk to another business owner 
and you were helping them with how they could encourage their managers to provide more metrics or provide reports with key metrics. And then you also wanted to help them in getting the quick wins that you mentioned helped when you were implementing this. What would your advice be? Yeah, I mean, what we've done, so there's a book and a kind of general operational philosophy called Traction. And we follow that pretty closely to the letter of the way that the book describes you to do that. And it's actually, to be honest, a lot of what I was doing before, but it makes it really nice that there's this book that outlines it all so your entire team can read it and everyone really kind of understands it and adopts it. But basically, one of the pieces of advice that this book has that has worked really well for us is a methodology they call everyone has a number, which is essentially that you outline all of the metrics that you've got as the business and you assign each person a metric, right? So you know exactly who owns what. And it seems simple, but actually a lot of the times managers, general managers of businesses or CEOs really think that it's very clear who owns what metric, but the internal team is thinking, well, I own a little bit of that, but I don't influence it entirely. Like, how does that all work? So you literally just kind of break through that. Obviously, there's a lot of things that are going to require cross-collaboration, but there's always one person in charge. And then what you do is based on that, you create these scorecards that say, you know, anything with, um, you know, marketing, for example, you look at all the metrics that you should be tracking as a business, you decide which ones you want to do weekly or uh, monthly. I tend to find that it's actually easier to have the exact same metrics you look at weekly and monthly. It almost complicates things to have different ones you look at in different timeframes. And then you have people report against that. So when I talk about quick wins, what I mean more is that if you have people running those reports each week, they find these little nuggets of wisdom in there that they weren't finding before and then are able to be really focused and execute against them. And what you find pretty quickly is that, you know, if you're running a team that is not looking at their metrics frequently, that they end up in kind of fire drill type situations, right? So if you, you know, if you don't have a pulse in terms of how your customers are feeling, you could easily get a month down the road and find out that 20% of the people that are working with you are just totally unclear on how you reset a password. And it's not that it's broken, it's just unclear, right? Whereas if you're reading you know, what's going on each week, you can fix that and not end up with a problem. So what I find is that people get really excited about the insight that they see in that, about how quickly they can enact change and how quickly they can you know, make improvements. And the fact that it just results in a lot more control and structure and you know, just less chaos, less firefighting, because you see trends, whether there are risks or opportunities you can jump on really, really quickly by using metrics. And that's great advice. And Traction is actually a book that I go back and reread probably every 12 months and learn something new. So it might be time for me to have another read of that book. Yeah, no, it's great, isn't it? It's honestly like, there's a few other methodologies like that. But Traction has that really nice blend of being simple enough to be able to actually implement, but like, you know, robust enough to actually work. And I think it's a really nice balance. So I wanted to take the conversation in a slightly different direction now and talk about balancing family life with work life. So you and Dave together have grown a successful business, but you've also done that while having a lifestyle with three little boys. So do you have any tips around how you've managed to do that and that integration between when you're working, when you're not working? How you balance that with Dave? Yeah. Oh, it's really complicated, I have to say, for anyone who's done it. So I'm in a lucky stage right now. And actually, I guess a lot of people would say they're still very small, but my kids are four, six, and nine. But for a little while, I had, you know, you imagine those ages at newborn, three, and, you know, six type time frame, And it was fairly tricky. What I would say is, I mean, in general, 
I'm somebody who needs to be working when I'm working and with the kids when I'm with the kids. So anybody who sort of, whenever I hear of people who are trying to do things like do their important work with a baby in, you know, one side of the room and, you know, any of that, it just doesn't work. I never find that people actually are able to do good work. And I personally have always, you know, needed to have that delineation. What I tend to find as a mom, I work super early in the morning. (laughs) I find that I wake up well before anybody else does. And I get all my kind of deep work type done where you really need to focus. And then I use the time then the kids are at school as well. We had babysitters from the kids when they were young. You know, we always kind of knew we needed to do that for a couple hours a day and never really tried to multitask. And the other thing, obviously, that I think has been really integral for me to be able to make it work is the fact that Dave and I spotted a couple of years ago that we couldn't both be working. It's not that we couldn't both be working because obviously you could both be working, but we needed to really delineate like who was kind of the point person for like, you know, something that popped up with the kids versus who was the point person for something that popped up with the business. So you get a phone call in the middle of the day and you need to go, you know, do something with the kids. It was, we just clearly delineated who was going to be doing that and not have that, you know, trying to juggle all the time. It's almost like applying some of business theory of having really clearly defined roles and doing that with your partner as well. That's really interesting. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, and, you know, we obviously, we lived in, in Bali and we never wanted to have a whole lot of help with the kids, right? So I mentioned we had babysitters, but we weren't a family that wanted to have like a full-time nanny around all the time. We really, you know, the reason we set up our own business because we wanted to be raising our kids and spending time with the kids. But we really took advantage of all the getting help, household help, right? So, you know, I never cleaned the house. (laughs) You know, we never did things like that. So what I did actually thinking back when Billy was a baby is we went through and sort of said, what are all of the things that are not critical to business and are not good family time that we're doing? And I just was ruthless with finding people to help me do those things. So I didn't want to outsource the kids and I wanted to make sure that the business grew. But, you know, we stopped doing things like cleaning the house. We stopped doing things like booking our own travel here and there, you know, things like that, that sort of eat up time, just made sure that I was never doing any of that kind of stuff so that all my time could be family or business. Yeah, no, that's great. Or fun, right? Like, you know, doing things. Yeah. I don't mean that that's the only thing, but I just mean (laughs) you didn't end up doing lots of household chores in order to then save some money. You really kind of focused on those two principles. Well, Karen, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast. Did you have any final comments or words of wisdom that you wanted to share before we wrap up? Oh gosh, words of wisdom. Um no, I mean not really. I think for anybody who's trying to, you know, run a business with a family, what I would say is that while it seems complicated to be thinking about how to set that up, I actually think it's infinitely easier to be running something on your own than it is to be, you know, relying on, you know, looking at kind of taking on a role in a non kind of remote type environment. So, you know, I wouldn't be intimidated by that side of things, but actually I think it's an enabler to have that flexibility to be able to be home. You know, that's definitely something that makes it easier to have both as opposed to complicates things. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to talk to you. By the way, if you want to support to get paid and make better decisions, we've put together a zero small business toolkit, including cash flow forecast templates and guides to setting up zero. Grab it for free at beingninjas.com slash zero toolkit. 
and that's X-E-R-O-T-O-O-L-K-I-T. 